It's August 2022. Yet another volcanic eruption is happening in Fagradasfjall, not far from the Icelandic capital Reykjavik. During the weeks that follow, crowds are gathering to watch the wild, beautiful spectacle of lava flowing out of the ground. Among the crowd is one person with a special interest in lava. Lava is so diverse. It's depending on pressure, heat, how fast it cools, and I mean, we have it in all forms. Anhildur Palmedottir is an Icelandic architect, and she has a very special reason for being fascinated by volcanic eruptions. They actually are a provider of building materials because it spews out uh, uh, molten lava, which is like from 10 to 15 uh, cubic meters per second. So it's a lot of materials coming up, just spreading all over. It also comes out without using any energy. It provides its own energy and uh, metals and uh, interesting things. So we, we thought of it as a like kind of a interesting uh, solution on the building material uh, shortage in the world that will probably be a problem at some point. Yes, you heard that right. Lava as a building material for houses. It might sound crazy, but according to the UN Environment Programme, the construction sector is responsible for 34% of the energy demand in the world. So we need to think outside the box. The reason for doing it is, of course, just this climate uh, emergency that we are facing. And, and, and I mean, we cannot continue to build like we, like we are planning to do and not in the way that we, that we have been doing it. So uh, now, I mean, it's impossible to go back and be kind of a traditional architect. We'll get back to Anhildur and her thoughts on lava's potential as a sustainable building material. But let's just start by saying that she's not alone in this mission. Anhildur is one of a growing number of architects looking for alternative ways to build and design our cities. Not only are they looking for new natural and sustainable materials for the buildings in the future, they are also looking for solutions to make existing cities more sustainable. In this episode, we examine some of the solutions new types of architecture can provide for the global climate crisis. We'll look at the importance of bringing nature back into our cities, and we ask how we can create surroundings that encourage a more sustainable lifestyle. I'm Josefine Folkwarts, and you're listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. For us, starting a practice in landscape architecture was an opportunity for a, for a big adventure, basically. This is Peter Venstra, landscape architect and co-founder of Lola Landscape Architects in Rotterdam. We're based in the Netherlands, where basically everything has been designed. Like every square inch of the country has been planned and designed and executed. So... It, everything is well taken care of, but there is, it also lacks a certain fantasy or a certain um, uh, spontaneous dimension. And um, we always felt like we had to find uh, or create small escapes in this, uh, in this uh, in country. Today, Peter is in Iceland participating in a Nordic Talks event, which is part of the yearly design talks in Reykjavik, arranged by Iceland Design and Architecture. 
Design Talks addresses challenges the world is facing and highlights the importance of design and architecture in solving global problems. And the global perspective is exactly what Peter is talking about. In Iceland, you're blessed with, with all this fantastic nature around you. But if you look globally, cities are growing to the scale of 10 million, 20 million people. There are people living there that are never able to exit the city because the city is so large that that's the only thing they see. The major cities of the Netherlands don't exactly have tens of millions of inhabitants. But still, the country is very densely populated with more and more people living in cities. I think we ended up with quite a poor um, natural urban environment. And um, I think it's, it's, uh, it's very important to try to enrich that, uh, that environment with, let's say, more uh, natural beauty, more seasonal qualities. In other words, more nature, more green spaces in our cities, that's what we need as humans. And every time Peter succeeds with one of his projects, the story is the same. That's the thing you can see everyone's response to it, from, from young to old, no matter what culture, um, immediately people relax and, um, and have a positive response to it. So, so I think it's, it's very evident that, it, that, it's, that it's good for people and that people appreciate it. I don't think there is even a question where, whether it's good or bad. It's, it's, uh, it's very clear that, that it's fundamental to everyone to, to include this in your life. Mm -hmm. Sitting next to Peter, Angel Dor is nodding. And this connects really well to how we've been developing and uh, housing in Iceland the last years. Because, it, like you said, we have this great nature and easy access to it. But our buildings the last uh, years have been, I mean, uh, nature is also having a light. When you wake up in the morning, you get the eastern light in for, for your coffee. And, uh, and all this, maybe you can see outside through windows in two directions. And uh, we also felt that in COVID that many Buildings don't even have a balcony or a, on an area where you can step out or you can't open your window almost because of standardization and everything like that. So I think we have, uh, I mean, of course, as, a, as an architect, I, I mean, uh, we should all feel responsible for, for people being able to enjoy this because, as you say, that all every, every research is just confirming that uh, we need this. This makes us more happy and... Uh, so I think uh, even though we can live really dense, we need, there are some kind of points that we need always to, we, we need biodiversity, we need nature plants and we need fresh air and, and light. Our third participant is also Icelandic, so she understands the conditions just as well. Her name is Sigrun Tualazius and she is a product designer as well as a biologist. She's concerned with the lack of biodiversity in cities. We have to think more about how we have this biological diversity in cities. Because like now in Reykjavik, most people, many people at least, they poison their, their gardens uh, because they just want to have this plant but not the other plant. We are always controlling uh, what we have in our gardens. I think we have to think a little bit about stop controlling it and let the plants and let the life that wants to be there, we just have to make make them some kind of situation that they are able to be there, grow there and live there. There is one thing that Sigrun does want to control, and that's the level of toxic waste in our cities. 
she thinks that nature can play a part in the fight against it. More precisely, fungi or mushrooms could have a role. We know that uh, there are fungi that are able to uh, deconstruct and uh, eliminate all kind of uh, toxic things, all, all kind of toxic materials. So uh, like uh, man-made toxic uh, compounds and also toxic compounds that are found in, in, on the earth. A lot of them comes from burning, uh, like from uh, volcanoes, and there come toxic materials up from there. And uh, fungi are able to deconstruct all those materials. Uh, other, other fungi are able to uh, absorb like um, heavy metals. So it would be possible on places where it's uh, polluted areas. Uh, if we have polluted areas, then we could clean them up with fungi. So it would be really good if we could clean this area up by uh, placing fungi there. That's super interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes, it yeah. is. It's also in the um, urban environment. Um, mushrooms can also really help to, for trees to develop their root system. Mm -hmm. But also there it's not entirely clear how it works. So you can actually order sort of uh, fungi uh, packages to just uh, oh. add <laughs> to the tree ball. Mm -hmm. But then it works in some situations and other situations it, it doesn't work at all. Mm -hmm. and, and no one really understands yeah. how this works. But it's also like when we are making cities, when we dig a hole, then we are cutting this network. So always when we are building a new area or a new house, then we are maybe destroying some kind of network. So it would be nice to think about how can we uh, rebuild this network. So maybe nature in itself can be part of future attempts to build sustainable surroundings for people living in cities. But what about right now? What changes are we seeing? What I think is a very interesting development is as cities are growing denser, um, much more of the public space and the public green space becomes a roof, either because of underground parking or because, let's say, uh, roofs of buildings are being made accessible. And I think there has been a fantastic um, development in this um, because it's always started with sort of minimum weight uh, roof packages. And the only thing that would grow there was this sort of sedum uh, succulent uh, carpet of small plants um, that have no um, value for, for biodiversity and, and also not for cooling the city because uh, once the sun hits it, it becomes as hot as a, as a black roof. Um, but over time, let's say the, the standards for, for actually increase uh, are getting better and better and the, the depth of soil on top of these um, uh, roofs is getting bigger and bigger. Allowing also um, real soil to be added. This is something we always try to not to have this sort of technical substrate that, that is um, usually sold by the construction industry, but, but also to add like real soil to these, uh, to these roofs. So it can actually be a complete um, piece of nature where, let's say, vegetation interacts with the soil and... Uh, Make a biosystem on, exactly. yeah. on the roof. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there are things underway to a certain extent, 
Still, it's probably a valid question if there are enough investors to really push things forward. They will be ready when they see that the numbers fit and that they won't have to pay much more for. But I think what will happen is probably that uh, we will have to put tax on CO2 and then it's going to cost to be unsustainable. And that will probably be the push needed. But of course, we have have uh, money people and uh, and contractors and developers that ha- have vision and want to change this and are ready to pay a little bit more or often not, but to to be part of the change, which makes maybe planning the project differently than, than they have. And that's also just very painful for engineers and for contractors and every, everyone that just maybe they have to do things completely different, not use what they are used to, not use the materials or the, or the tools that they are used to, not use the same same uh, like work plan that they have. So I think it's happening, but probably in scale it will not happen until we have kind of push from the government. And that will happen. I mean, it's happening in Denmark there, and I think probably in Netherlands also that they have tax on on uh, if um, if a project is going to emit more than a specific amount of CO2 u- units then uh, per year, then they tax it. And I think it's moving in that direction a little bit. And we have to envision and change the way people think about houses. I mean, cities, they will look completely different probably. And and if we show them how they could look, then I think it's easier just to take the steps exactly towards it. Peter agrees that showcasing good examples is the way forward, but a change of pace is necessary. I think the system is still very polluting and I think all the efforts right now are just going into making it less polluting, mm-hmm. nevertheless still polluting. And if you think of um, our aim to become carbon neutral, this is going way too slow. And I don't think indeed that this, this will come from within the, within the system. I was part of the curation team for the Biennale in Rotterdam last year. And there we found one architect that was, I think, very interesting, was really making an effort in uh, building carbon positive buildings. So he was saying like, okay, well, maybe uh, let's say uh, it, it all goes towards carbon neutrality, but it will always have, I don't know, 10, 20% of uh, uh Uh, carbon pollution so so we have to start to do the opposite um and but they really make an effort in making it happen to start everything with um me- measuring the zero situation uh then going through all the steps evaluating afterwards and also really uh verifying that they are um that they managed to do what they claim they wanted to do and It's more expensive. It's like 20% more expensive or something. So uh, they don't yet manage to do that within the same budget. But then they attract these new clients that are um, that cannot afford themselves to uh, commit to greenwashing, let's say. So they, um, I don't know, there are now all these sort of new companies that are working on the climate problem and or, or having some innovation um, to solve the climate crisis. Um, they also need a headquarters um, and they don't want a, a 30% less polluting building. They really want to give a good example and they're more than willing to pay this extra 20%. So I found that very inspiring that they just started with really doing what they uh, wanted to do and then the clients, they are, uh, they are coming. Mm-hmm.
everyone understands that there are obstacles to overcome, but there are also possibilities, with the use of the right arguments and with the right conditions. So, does that mean we can afford to be optimistic? One very hopeful thing we also discovered in this Biennale is that there were sort of very experimental uh, groups 25 years ago that were really in a niche, um, believing in something, circular architecture, whatever, um, and just sticking to it that really managed to reach the mainstream uh, in, in those 20 to 25 years. Mm -hmm. This is why I'm positive. I mean, I'm negative, I'm pessimistic, but I'm positive also because of this kind of multidisciplinary approach that, and also this kind of trial and error which we are probably coming into. We need to try something and we might have to say, oh, they didn't work, like you said, because of the greenwashing. We don't want to greenwash. And it's so complex that we can never know exactly, or we sometimes we don't know when we start, if it's going to be worse or better. So I think in that sense, I mean, it's kind of a, like a renaissance uh, era, a little bit. You're going to be doing tests and, and I hopefully, hopefully, uh, governments and, and nations will be open for it because I think we can make great things and it's a really exciting era to be part of. But uh, yeah, so if that's, if, if we're going to get some space to do that, then I think it's going to be really amazing. Trial and error are most certainly the keywords when it comes to Anhildur's vision of using lava as a building material. Last time we had an eruption, we tried to shape it and mold it and, and like guide it somewhere and uh, the next was to do the trenches and then we would dig the, the ground away a little bit from those uh, trenches and we would have walls, structural walls. That's truly fascinating. Walls for buildings coming more or less straight up from the ground and there's more. At the site we have now lava pools closed off below the surface and they're exactly or similar temperature that as molted glass. And we, for example, been 3D printing molted glass. So we, we thought that if we would tap into those pools, we could actually produce uh, a 3D print from the lava. <laughs> and then we have one crazy idea, which is like more, uh, maybe a little bit geoengineering, which we, we don't want to do, but uh, they have been digging down to get this geothermal energy uh, in the ground and they have hit lava. So they have actually been pointing down and the lava has just hit back with a huge force of tons of, of pressure. Mm -hmm. So if we could control that, we could, of course, dig down and touch it. If possible in the future, it would be good news for the Icelandic population to be able to use lava as a building material. Because according to the constitution of Iceland, the lava is not owned by anyone. All materials that are below ground will be owned by the people. So we thought the lava is coming up from the ground, not owned by anyone, and it's going to come up. So we can actually build the cities for everyone owned by the people. So it's going to be kind of a birthright to have lava. Of course, it's worth pointing out that not every country has volcanoes. But as we've heard today, there are many initiatives that can be taken to build houses in a more sustainable way and to bring nature back into cities. So what do Arnhilder, Peter and Sigrun think can be done by you and me as individuals to promote sustainable thinking in this field? This is Sigrun. I've changed 
my thinking about, uh, for example, plants uh, and flies and insects that live around me uh, in my house. And I don't uh, want to poison for wasps if I find them in my backyard. And I don't, I, I just want to live in good relationship with the types of species that want to live in my house with me and on my body and <laughs> in my backyard. I think if people just connect to all the life around them and maybe just nurse it a little bit instead of destroying it, we're always destroying everything, then we could uh, already get a better uh, biodiversity and uh, that will be the start of, of uh, something better. Anhil Dirk thinks the responsibility lies with the privileged part of the world where more energy is being used. The problem is on our side a little bit, and I even think our cat or dog uses more energy than and emits more CO2 than people living in poorer countries. So I think it's like our the privileged people's problem in a way to solve this. We need to change the big things and... Uh, And so we somehow have to learn, we designers need to learn how to talk money, uh, economy, try to make this kind in, into a number because a building that's torn down has a huge cost if connected to it. If you just translate the CO2 emissions of building a demol demolition and then building a new building, that of course has a cost. So we need to like, it's also, we also have problems with like often given design uh, the value of money and uh, ideas, the value of money. But I think now we need to somehow do this so that the governments and uh, people uh, that have money understand that it will, it costs to pollute also somehow. And I think it's um, the main uh, problem is on the shoulders of uh, the privileged in this world. Peter's advice is on a more societal level. I think it would be very important to make this change attractive for all levels of income. And I think that's that's maybe the biggest problem right now, is that we like to all uh, to dream about this. But then there's uh, whole groups in society for which this is less evident and less uh, of an urgency. And they have other uh, problems to deal with. And even this greenification can be seen as a threat. Um, I learned this one is once in a project in a sort of lower income neighborhood, um, there they were uh, uh, fearing uh, uh, green gentrification. So the, the let's say the, the tree in the street was the first sign of uh, rich people coming in. Mm -hmm. It would uh, raise the real estate prices, it would push out the, the, the low rent uh, apartments. And uh, so they were very much against nature in their streets because it was just the first step of them being forgotten and pushed out. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to these transitions, it's it's incredibly important to um, involve these groups into the changes and, and find ways to make it also attractive uh, for them. So action needs to be taken on different levels, at a personal level, in society and on the world stage. Hopefully this will be the case in years to come. As Peter's example showed, Ideas which once seemed wacky or utopian have become mainstream in just a quarter of a century. And if we fast forward to 2050, who knows, Icelandic houses may be made of lava. 
And we will see the usage of local raw materials in other countries as well. Maybe having sustainable surroundings will be the new normal in the future. I'm Josefine Volkwarts. Thank you for listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. Check out our website, nordictalks.com, and meet the people participating in each episode. I'm Josefine Volkwarts. Thanks for listening.